Well, hey there, everyone. I'm Daniel Hahn, and I'm the online campus pastor here at Oxford Assembly of God Church, and this is our podcast. And I just want to thank you for listening today. We hope the message you're about to hear inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you see that God has a purpose for your life. And now, let's get into the message. Since I was not going to be speaking uh, on Pentecost Sunday, I was meditating along the lines of what were the disciples doing between the ascension of Christ and waiting on Pentecost? And that was what I was going to share today. But as I began to pursue that thought, I felt the Lord give me a nudge in another direction. I want to speak to you about the, the few months before the cross. Recently, you remember I preached about the beginning of the end, right before Easter, that Lazarus was the beginning of the end. When he was resurrected, that put, the, the clock was ticking. That began to, uh, began to get put into effect. Now, this was about uh, just a little while before uh, the crucifixion. I've got a little bit too much volume up here, Charlie, if you don't mind. I want them to hear it, but I've already heard it. So the last few months before the cross, as I said, Lazarus, after the resurrection of Lazarus, he went back across uh, Edom. And from that point on, they made a concentrated effort to get rid of Jesus. They basically had a warrant out for his arrest. You read that. And they was looking for him. They were wanting to take him and they wanted to kill him. Well, what happened during that time? Probably between January and March, leading up to our Resurrection Sunday, probably January to March, prior to the crucifixion, and left uh, Elflagard Smith, uh, writer of the, one of the Chronological Bibles, he says this, that those three months was a microcosm of the entire ministry of Jesus. In other words, he kind of wrapped it all up and reiterated during those three months' time. And he had shared with his disciples that he was going to be put to death, and he had some final things to share with them. So today I'd like for you to think with me, and let's think about this thought, 10 lessons. Now, I know some of you could learn a lot more from that. You can get a lot more than 10, but 10 lessons learned from Jesus prior to the cross, prior to the crucifixion. I want us to look at those. Now, every one of these 10 things could be a sermon in itself. Some of them could probably even be a series of sermons. But today, I'd like to look at each one briefly. And there's parallel passage in Matthew and Mark, even some in Luke and some in John. But I'm going to take most of my message today from the Gospel of Matthew. So turn with me in Matthew chapter 19. Chapter 19. He entered Jericho... And was passing through. And behold, excuse me, that's not the right one. That's in Luke. Let's go back over to Matthew. I know what I'm doing. I'm just seeing if y'all were alert. <laughs> Matthew chapter 9. See, the guys, the guys in the booth had it right. They were just seeing if you could tell the difference. Luke, excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
This is where he taught. He, he left the crowd because they were getting ready to kill him. And he healed them there. The, the first point that I want you to understand and learn is that he met them there. Every one of us are somewhere on a spiritual journey. How many would agree with that? How many would agree with me that you're somewhere right now? That right now you're the what? You're the there. You're, you're here. You're there. Uh, I, I was so pleased when I saw all the things that these kids have got planned, how awesome it is, you know, from uh, different things. And it's amazing. And kids, don't begin to compare yourself what everybody else is doing. You do what God wants you to do. And I, I, I thought this thought came to my mind over there because one of them's going to be a cosmetologist. And chances are you'll need the cosmetologist before you need the neurosurgeon. Now you say, why would I say that? Because I've looked at some of you, okay? <laughs> now, if you look like you, that's where you are. That's where you are. I am glad that God meets us at the there. There he healed them. There he healed them. A great example is the woman at the well. He was there and all the disciples couldn't wait till they got back to Jerusalem. They wanted to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the action was. Now, I thank God for all the uh, revivals. I thank God for special ministries. I thank God for many, many, many things. But I'm so glad to tell you that God is always at the there. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to get touched. You don't have to go to the upper room to get touched. You can meet God because God is at the there. So wherever you are today, like the woman at the well, I love that passage because in John chapter 3, there was a guy by the name of Nicodemus. He was probably the most educated guy that we have recorded in the Gospels. Nicodemus, highly educated. Jesus never told him he was a Messiah. He met him at his point of need. In the very next chapter, there was a woman that was been married five times, and the guy she was living with was not her husband. And guess what? Jesus met her there. He met her where they were. When he was coming through and people were sick, he ministered to them, and he healed them there. So we need to understand something, that God will always meet you at your point of need and at your level of understanding. Can you say amen? So those of you watching online, guess what? God's there. God's there. God's there. Then we go to point two. And I think you understand this is a very touchy subject. But it talks about divorce and remarriage. Now, we need to be reminded that the family was instituted before the church. I said the family was instituted for the church. So when Jesus was giving important teachings, he included the family. He talked about the family. Now, I realize that many today, many today, many of you have been divorced and remarried, and I'm not bringing condemnation on you. I'm trying to get you a pointer to let you know that God's not worried so much about the yesterday as he is tomorrow. You can't go back and change the past. You can't go back and correct that because right now you're at the there and you're pressing on. You're going somewhere else and you need to know that God is there for you. And we can't go back and change the 
past, but we can learn from it and have a better future. Now, let me give you just a simple key. If you go down to verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, that phrase, hardness of the heart, is kind of interesting. Because the Greek word for hardness means the condition of the heart. Now, he was not talking about your ticker. He was not talking about your, what pumps blood to you. He was talking about your inner man. He was talking about your, your heart. And he says that the hardness of the heart... Jesus used it a few chapters later when he rebuked the disciples. He said, you did not believe because of your unbelief and for the hardness of your heart. Now, Proverbs called the heart, the hardness of the heart, it describes as the crooked heart or a, a heart that's out of line. How many knows that when we get out of line with God, that's going to create some problems? That creates some problems when we do not line up with the uh, situation with God, when we don't line up our thought process with God. Now, most of us, if we study the Bible very much, we remember when it talked about Pharaoh having a hardness of the heart. Hardness of the heart. Now, I cannot give you a great theological explanation, but as I was thinking about it, this is what came to my mind. Anytime we become self-centered, we harden our heart. I said, anytime when we take our mind off of God and put it on self, our heart gets out of whack. Isn't that what happened to Eve? Whenever she began to look at the fruit and it looked good to eat, that was when she began to drift away and lose focus from God. Throughout the scriptures, we find the same thing when we begin to lose our focus and we become self-centered. Because even if you go back before Eve, at least many scholars believe that the devil was kicked out of heaven before Eve, what was his problem? He became self-centered. He, he looks at, I need to be worshiped equal to God. How many knows that when somebody gets self-centered, it's gonna mess your relationship up? It doesn't matter what relationship we're talking about. It'd be husband, wife, God, and us, friends. When we begin to look at ourselves, I believe we begin to develop a hardened or crooked or a heart that's out of whack. And God, Jesus, reminding them, he was reminding them that we don't need to be self-centered. We do not need to ask the question, what's in it for me? Because when we do that, from the moment we do that, our relationship begins to deteriorate. Now, that's the gospel according to Daryl. I know that some of you could explain it a lot, lot better. But I believe Jesus is telling us today to keep our focus on him. Remove and try to keep our focus away from self. So he talked about the there. 
He talked about where you are. He talked about relationships. And then he talks about the significance of God's children. The significance of God's children. In Mark's rendition of this passage, he even says that God became, or Jesus became indignant. The disciples got upset with him. They rebuked the people. Hey, hey, what are you doing bringing these kids to Jesus? He don't have time to fool with these kids. And Jesus rebuked them. And again, Mark's rendition says he became indignant with them. I didn't really know what indignant meant. So I looked it up. Because that's the term he's using. It referred to that. Indignant literally means feeling anger or annoyance. Now, who was that feeling indignant? Jesus. I could, I, I could camp out here a while, folks. Because I know that it was speaking of the small children. But as I read the scripture, I believe that God gets indignant, annoyed with people that begin to talk about his kids. Now you say, oh, I don't know about that. How many grandparents do we have here? How many of it does it push your button when somebody talks against your kids? Huh? I mean, it may be deserved. They may be spoiled, but guess what? They're still... They're still your kids. They're still your grandkids. How many knows that God gets indignant when somebody starts talking about his kids? Now, I know some of you are going to go talk about the preacher around his table today, but you remember, I'm one of his kids. I'm thankful that I know that I'm one of God's kids. And I can tell you something. One of my biggest soapbox issues that I like to get on. I'm, I'm not going to climb up there today. I'm just going to stay on the bottom step. But when a mature Christian, when a mature Christian begins to complain about baby Christians, hey, mature Christians, if you're mature, you ought to know better. And you ought to let them fall down, and you need to be helping them up, not kicking them while they're down. So, suffer the little children to come to me. I remember Bob Harrington. I got to hear him preach several times in person. Great preacher. But I remember him sharing a story about how flying at 30,000 feet. And he said, you know, I don't like to be flying at 30,000 feet on a machine made by the lowest builder when somebody using God's name in vain. I want to tell you something. I don't like to be around it when people's talking about God's kids. I better get off that. Let's go to number four. Beware of the love of possessions or riches. This is a good question to simplify it. We need to ask ourselves this question. Because, see, there's nothing wrong with being rich. If you really feel guilty about it, I'll take some of it. 
There's nothing wrong with being rich. The issue is, do you own your possessions or do your possessions own you? Because if your possessions own you, it's going to be hard to make it. I said, it's going to be hard to make it. And that's what we talked about. talked about how hard it would be to make it. Now, one definition that I read years ago, I don't know if this is correct. Some of you uh, more intelligent, more learned people can, can correct me. Just don't do it now. Wait till afterwards. Uh, but I read years ago that in the cities in, in, in Israel, that they were all gated communities. I said they were gated communities. And what did they do at night? They closed the gate. All those, especially those that were places of commerce that all these people come in, they closed the gate. Now I was told, because see it tells here, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And I was told that all of these cities, they had the main gate. Now Israel had a bunch of gates. I said, Israel had a bunch of gates. You can go to the uh, different gates leading to the different place, but it had a bunch of gates. But they would close the gates, but suppose a caravan came after the gate was closed. They either had to wait till the next morning or they took all of the load off the camels and led them through a real small door, but they had to, that was called the eye of the needle because that's the only way they could get through. They had to lay aside their possessions. Now, let's tie that in with the love of possessions and being weighted down. Because the Bible says that we need to lay aside those things which easily beset us or those sins which easily beset us, those earthly attachments. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I read it all the time. And you'd think I'd have it totally memorized by now, but my forgetter works better than my member. So I'm going to read it. Hebrews 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, our possessions are not the sin, but they certainly can become a weight. And sometimes we have to lay those things aside so that we can stay in relationship the way it should be with Jesus. Now, I know some of you say, well, pastor, you're just making up things. No, this is the teachings that Jesus made shortly before the cross. He said, don't you let your possessions own you. You own your possessions. I have no desire to try to run a marathon. I used to, I, I used to want to try to run one, but I'm up to three laps around the refrigerator now, so <laughs> I got a ways to go. But I can tell you, if I knew, Brother Bill, that I was going to run a, a, a marathon next week, I would no, not put a backpack on my back, and I would not put my brogans those old big heavy boots on, I would want the lightest thing I can. I would want to lay aside that. And yet in 
spiritually speaking, so many times we keep waiting ourselves down, expecting to run with patience the race that God has given us. And God said, lay those things aside because you need to run the race that is set before you. Run it with endurance. And I tell you, it's a lot easier to run with endurance when you're not weighted down. So we need to be aware of those riches. Then, once again, Jesus reminds them of his upcoming death. He does that every now and then. He reminds them that he is just passing through and he wants to leave them with some important things. Now, on this next one, I could use several statements. But let's just read it where it talks about When the John and James' mother asked them about what? Putting a special seat. They need, to, they need a special seat. Now, I believe, and a lot of people believe, that James and John were cousins of Jesus. If that's the case, then she had a little bit more right, maybe say, hey, these are your cousins. Let them... It's on the right hand and left. But notice what it says. Let's, let's read here. If I can find right, uh, a mother's request. This is at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of your mind are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, this is one way I could have worded it. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Church, there's a lot of times I'm thankful that God did not answer my ignorant prayers. Young people, you may be praying that God will let a certain someone be your spouse. And in 10 years from now, you'll say, thank God you didn't answer that prayer. Huh? You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking, right? How many knows that there's a lot of things that we're not smart enough to know what we're asking? Oh, some of you are too smart. You know it all. I tell you, there's a lot of things that I'm not smart enough. I'm glad that God says, listen, you don't know what you're asking. Okay, even, I have to think about this. When we pray for the sick, I've caught myself, I've heard people saying, Lord, give them perfect healing. You know what perfect healing is? Yeah, you guessed it. Because once you, once you get that perfect healing, you're never going to hurt anymore. Aren't you glad that God didn't answer that prayer? I've had people lay hands on me and pray for certain things that I'm glad God didn't hear that prayer. You say, don't he hear? Yes, he hears them. But we don't know what we ask. Okay, that could be one of them. But let's go on where it says, are you able? To go through what you need to go through. The reality is friends. I believe that you could say that James and John. Had a touch of the hardness of the heart. 
that they begin to think about themselves. Now, if you read it not only here but in the other Gospels, this was a pain in all the disciples. They got upset every time they heard James and John wanting to sit next to Jesus. I know that would never happen in a semi God church, but I understand that some churches get upset. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. I think the great and the correct answer is that we need to be like John the Baptist, not like John the Apostle. John the Baptist said, he must increase. I must decrease. Then we're having the healing of the blind. The amazing thing about this, again, is the disciples. Is it, and I realize this was not the church, but is it okay for me to call the disciples the church? Because don't you think they would represent the church during that day? They were the church. And as they went out of Jericho, a great cow followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on the son of David. The crowd rebuked them. The church, what are you doing? Calling out to Jesus. He's got work to do. He's got places to go. I can tell you something, church. I believe Jesus is giving us an illustration. We may be interrupted on our journey. But if we're not listening to the hurting hearts, we're not representing Christ very well. We're not re representing Christ very well. And you say, well, pastor, won't people take advantage of us? Yeah, most likely. But let me just say this. If you want to be a bridge, you've got to be willing to be walked on. Hey, that's worth writing down. Some of you did write that down. <laughs> if you want to be a bridge, you've got to be willing to be walked on. See, the church must be the connecting point to Jesus. I love what James Davis says. He, he compares the, the way to uh, heaven and the way to Christ as an interstate. He said, we got to make as many entry ramps as we can to get people on the highway to heaven. Number eight, Matthew tells us, as well as Luke, talks about being a steward, talks about planting the seeds, it talks about taking care of the harvest, it talks about using our, our gifts. But notice what it says over in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us. Now, I realize this was talking about the apostles, but again, I think we could say the church. This is how people should regard the church. 
And I can tell you, the most common thing that I hear about people regarding the church that they don't like, the church is always after my money. Hey, I get that. But every time I go to Walmart and Publix, they're after my money. They won't let me get out of there. But I think we understand what I'm saying. He said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We've got to be faithful stewards. I've got two more that I've got to share with you hurriedly. Gospel of John shares it. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus raised. Six days from the Passover. That means that this was probably a Saturday or Friday before the triumphal entry on Sunday. Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money. He was a treasure and he kept the purse. He said, man, if she'd have sold that, she could have given a lot of money to the church. Me. But Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We need to give our best to Jesus. We don't need to give our leftovers. I said, we don't need to give our leftovers. Thank God for the generosity of this church. Thank God for your willingness to give. And I could go on and on about how blessed we have been through your giving, not just of money, but labor and so many other things. Thank you. But don't give the church your junk. Don't give God your leftovers. Matter of fact, if I read it first, it says, the, the way it says, it says, give your first fruit. Let me scratch that one. That one didn't go over very good. <laughs> We're to give our best to God. And before we leave that, let me point out something to you in case you missed it. Now, I know Mary had been with all the crowd. And I know that women, and men, I found this to be true, women have a lot more spiritual discernment than lots of men do. She might have understood when Jesus was telling them he was getting ready to be crucified. Because I'm going to tell you, the disciples didn't have a clue. But I'm so glad of this. There's many times when none of us have a clue 
But when we're obedient to God, God does it for a purpose. Young people, those of you that are graduating, those of you that are expecting to graduate, we just ask you and remind you that the things that God allows in your path today are not there for a hindrance. It's there for a blessing to prepare you for something later on. So give your best to Jesus. And number 10, we need to remember the real mission. How many knows that sometimes we forget? This is where I started out a while ago in Luke chapter 19. This was right before he went into Israel, uh, Jerusalem. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. I'm not going to read the rest of it. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was small. He couldn't see Jesus for all the crowd. He said, I want to at least see him. This is a great comfort to me, friends, because I can assure you that anytime we start looking for Jesus, he's already found us. He knows where we are. He knows where we are. Matter of fact, he knows who we are. As he passed by and he called him out, he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus had no idea that Jesus was going to single him out. And you say, well, pastor, you said, well, you need to remember the mission. What was the mission? Let's go to the last verse there of that section. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Ten lessons. And I know as we went over them, someone said, pastor, that doesn't apply to me. But punch a neighbor and tell them that one applied to you. Lessons. Lessons. He knows where you are. He knows what your real needs are. He doesn't want you to have a crooked or a hardened heart. He wants your relationships to grow. We could go on and on and reiterate them all. But the main mission that Jesus came to this earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. And one of the last things that he did was to find a man that was looking for him. A man that was not thought of in high-ranking places because he was a tax collector. And customary that tax collectors rip people off. They were not thought of very highly. He never dreamed that Jesus would meet him where he was. Right there in that tree. So friend, you may not know exactly what's going on. You may have tons and tons of questions. But I can assure you of a couple of things. One, that Jesus knows where you are. 
And he's come to seek and to save you. If you've never availed yourself of that, you need to be reminded that he's still looking for you. And he's still touching bodies. He's still meeting needs even today. Bow with me in prayer as the worship team comes back. Holy Spirit, minister by your power. Minister by your grace. Because, Father, everyone here today, we're we're there. We're at the there. And that's where you are. You're here to minister and to touch hearts, lift heavy burdens, give peace, heal bodies. Whatever's needed, Lord, we surrender it to you. We ask you to minister as only you can do. And we give you praise. We give you praise and we give you honor and we give you glory. If you're here today and you need prayer, if you need God to meet you where you are, this is the place. So just lift out where you are and come to front and we'll pray with you and pray for you as we worship the Lord together. If you're able to stand for a few minutes, please do so as we sing this worship, worship song that God can use us. On behalf of our pastor and staff here at OAG, we want to say thank you. Thank you for being a part of our ministry. We are grateful for you and the support you give our church and its ministries so that we can continue to do what God has called us to do to be the family church for the family of God. For more content from Pastor Strickland and Oxford Assembly of God, check out our media website at oag.church/media.